Have you heard about the drama that's happening in pro wrestling at the moment? No. There's There's been huge drama. In, do you know who CM Punk is? Yeah, yeah, I love CM Punk. Well, so, well I'm, I'm going to qualify that by saying I used to. If he's done something like shot a dog on telly, I don't. He's he's shot a metaphorical business dog. <laughs> he, <laughs> he he did a press presser after a match where he like uh, stopped pretending to be you know like, and just started calling everyone he worked with bricks and stuff. <laughs> but didn't he do that with the pipe bomb speech years ago? No, but this was for real. <laughs> and, oh, and then apparently, apparently there was like a fight afterwards. Uh, where like there was like a melee backstage where like loads of wrestlers got involved and like sk- like someone bit someone else. <laughs> <laughs> this is way more exciting than this like Hollywood spitting that's going on. I know. Like imagine grown men at work biting each other. This is the future liberal swans. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, listener, to this episode 201 of the Electronic Wireless Show, Rock Paper Shotgun's PC gaming podcast, and the only podcast you need, in my opinion, which is that of Alice Bell, and I'm joined this week by medium-sized Smoke. I'm uh, the younger brother of Big Smoke from GTA San Andreas, uh, and a lot more polite. Okay, look, yeah. Should I should be medium-sized vape, really. <laughs> The 2022 version. <laughs> uh, Matthew's not here this week, so we don't have Wolf Carlton, PhD. Um, but yeah, we've got Nate, which is all you need, really. Um, and we're talking about the best cinematics in games this week, which CM Punk would probably be very good at. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's really interesting you said cinematics. Is there a difference between a cinematic and a cutscene? There I go, um, starting with taxonomy again. But I, I don't know, actually. There probably is. Um, I get but... the feeling cinematic's an older term because it was like when you got a fancy, incredibly grainy video that lasted Pre-rendered, yeah, not in-game engine, yeah. Yeah, it's probably that, isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, how, how are you this week, Nate? Yeah, very reasonable, actually, I would say. Um, oh, I did something interesting. I can't remember what it is now. (laughs) Can't have been that interesting. (laughs) How how are your fish? They're all ticking along. Uh, I mean, numbers are are down anyway these days. That sounds like they're unpopular with the public. Um, Ratings are really down on the gobes. Yeah, they're never. The gobies are never going to get in cabinet. Imagine. I would like a cabinet of gobies actually. Um, No, it's uh, because when. Especially, like, obviously I got rid of a few tanks when Marina moved in. And then, Mm. like, now that, you know, it's going to cost £100 every time you look at the sun or whatever nightmare electricity scenario we're going to be in um, for the foreseeable. 
it, it just feels it just feels a bit wrong to have loads of fish tanks running. So yeah, I'm just it's quite sad really. I'm having to you know gradually dismantle them. You know, and, and, and more than I, I really want to, I suppose. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see how things go. Maybe Liz Trust will sort out the economy and it will be fine. <laughs> and the gobies will, yeah. Uh, but we'll yeah, I'm not getting rid of the gobes unless anyone wants to take a lot of them. <laughs> Again, you keep making these pleas. And folks, I, I really think he is serious. I think he wants someone to take some of the fish. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was. I I don't joke about gobies. Um, They're very yeah serious business. So yeah, I'm 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 almost basically having to starve them to stop them outgrowing the space I have for them. So Jesus, <laughs> you know, I mean, to to qualify that they because they are, they are extremophiles, they live in a really wild environment. So like the natural thing to do is just not eat for ages and then just grow massively when there is food. So I'm just sort of keeping them in the quiet phase a bit. But, uh, you know, I could feed them burgers if I knew they had good homes to go to. <laughs> burgers. <laughs> My God. Oh, so cross. Uh, like, the, um, Juicy, the dog. Yeah. Because um, I, um, I worked late last night. And um, so Ashley had made a lovely selection of sort of Japanese snacks for dinner, like karaoke and things. And I said, um, yeah, we agreed because I was going to be working till later. Oh, I'll I'll have mine later on. Mm. We call it me having night meat. Um, Of course you do. Why would you call it anything else? (laughs) Tally finds that very entertaining rather than sinister, bless her. Um, But... No, I came downstairs to find Ashley just shouting "juicy" in the most outraged tone of voice I've I've ever heard, and turned the corner to find like a white Alsatian on the kitchen counter, like guzzling down my entire dinner in one Christian gulp. Oh my god! Yeah, and it's a shame because uh, me and Juicy have, have not had a great rapport. Um, <clears throat> She doesn't like men much, I don't think, which is fair. Mm. And, you know, I haven't wanted to sort of invade her space. So we haven't interacted a huge amount. <clears throat> but we'd had a sort of a, um, you know, like a warming of relations. Like I'd started to spend a bit more time with her and, like, do that thing that people who don't, you know, associate with dogs a vast amount do when trying to befriend a dog. We just sort of kneel down and try to sort of talk to it like you're Jesus or something. Um, but it sort of seemed to be working, you know. We we, we we were a bit more friendly with each other, and I thought that was nice. Um, but now the pallid thief has consumed a meal I've been looking forward to for hours, and there shall be no peace. Oh, my God. Okay, well, we'll need an update on that feud uh, as it progresses. There certainly will be. Are you going to eat her dinner? No, I'm just going to keep saying her name like I'm Matt Berry. Juicy. Okay. <laughs> Gives me a small feeling of superiority. Good, good. Um, well, this week I, uh, been, I've been getting back into watching a lot of movies and I've really enjoyed it. Um, and it they was... They're great, aren't they, films? Yeah, they're good, yeah. Um, 
And this weekend, it was in the UK as well. In Ireland, it was like National Cinema Day or something. So trying to get people back into cinemas. So you could get any ticket for anything, four euro. And um, so we were like, well, if there's one film that we would love to see in cinemas but not pay full price for, it's Michael Flatley's Blackbird. <laughs> oh, can you explain what this is? Because it's mentioned like it's a sort of a new and worse kind of fart, but I don't know anything about it. Uh, so do you know who Michael Flatley is? He was the tap dancing man. Uh, close. Um, Irish dance. Uh, well, so that he... was a racist clangor. I'm sorry. Um, I... <laughs> he... Um... He's so he's um Irish American. His parents were Irish, but he was born and raised in Chicago. And then he turned up on like he got very good at Irish dance, and uh turned up on um Eurovision uh in the nineties doing Irish dancing, but like cool. And from there, um you know did the River Dance Show and and Lord of the Dance shows and became like a multi multi millionaire many times over. And for the last like however many decades, has been living in a huge mansion slash compound in um, near me actually. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, and when he retired from dancing in 2016, I think did his last show in Vegas there. And then he was like, "Well, do you know what I should do is." Uh, be a film star now (laughs) oh yes but instead of like doing the the thing that you have to do if you want to do acting which is like learn to act and then do rehearsals and stuff and and you know audition for things he was like i have you know 400 million dollars or whatever it is so i'll just make my own movie (laughs) really yeah, so he filmed it in like 2018, and it's one of those write the theme tunes saying that he's like director, writer, lead actor. I think he might also be the location manager because the two locations in it are his millionaire's friend's uh, hotel in like Barbados or somewhere, and his house. <laughs> so... This is incredible. And it was filmed in 2018, and then it premiered at like some film festival. Uh, I think possibly in Italy years ago, but no press were allowed in to see it. So there had just been rumours about this film floating around. And then he obviously, for his ego, really wanted to have like a full cinema premiere and a, a you know cinema release. Um, so it's only out in cinemas now. And this is one of the greatest cinema experiences I've had in my life. Like it's, Really? It's like the new room. Like it's so... There's something wrong with all of it like every every scene it's uh, like he plays victor blackley (laughs) (laughs) who's who's like a secret agent and he led a team of secret agents who were called the chieftains and um and then his fiance got burned to death because she knew him or whatever uh, and so he retired and then spent has spent he's done a Casablanca and has spent like ten years just running this cool hotel where he walks around in a very form fitting tuxedo shaking everyone's hand all the time. <laughs> and then and like tw- twenty year old women come up to the sixty year old man and basically say, like, you're looking very sexy full tonight. <laughs> and he wears loads of hats. I can't explain it, but the big like like at the end of our screening the audience spontaneously applauded. 
and the biggest laugh in it i can't explain exactly why but there's a bit where he's stacking boxes in a flat cap and then he's like doing a sort of walk and talk like on um an aaron talking tv show and as he's walking talking takes off his flat cap hands it off to like uh, a lackey and the lackey gives him like a panama hat <laughs> <laughs> So he, so he can go driving. It's so. Does, does uh, he do any dancing in it at all? No, that was. I was. That's kind very of, bold. It's kind of disappointing. Not much happens in it, but it's so. It's so good. Eric Roberts is the bad guy in it, and he's uh, tremendous because he's like the only person in it who's like, "Well, this movie's going to be terrible, so I'll just have fun with it." <laughs> it's it's Michael Flatley like weird like Tommy Wiseau though, because that's um, part of the charm of the room for me. It's just like. That man? No, he's not quite as um, strange, I would say. He's very intense in a very, like, American way because he was on um, the the Late Late Show, which is, like, Ireland's, you know, chat show, talking about it. And he was talking about how, like, he made this for everyone who, you know, has shouldn't give up on their dreams i want to really encourage young people and you know and you know god has helped me do this and stuff and he's like michael you're like 60 years old and you have millions of dollars that's not a route that everyone is going to be able to take into the creative arts you know um but it's it's a tremendously bad film and i saw mark commode's rant about it and he says like it's the worst film he's ever seen and that there are scenes in this where tommy wiseau would be like i'm sorry that's not good enough <laughs> oh wow this is so exciting i i know it's like everyone says they like bad movies but like I, i'm one of them i do the thing, like bad movies the thing is though that it's it's so rare in in these this era in in the 2020s that you get a bad movie that is properly so bad it's good and and yeah, cause Markham, mostly there's just like anodyne movies these yeah, days yeah and and mark mode you know, I think you know. Mayo asks him, like, "Is is it? Could you know? Is it worth seeing even for the laugh?" And Kamo says, "No, it absolutely is." Mark Kamo is wrong. It's it's so. Is it still out in the cinema? So funny. I think so. It's definitely showing at the PCC in London still. Um, it was in in Ireland. It's c- kind of funnily enough, like basically the big movie of the weekend. So we like it's showing like three times a day in some cinema still. Um, it must be even funnier if you're Irish, I guess. Oh yeah, there's. It sounds like it. being being Irish is a big deal for Michael Flatley. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's very very good. Um, I I this isn't my recommendation for the end of the show, but uh, if you like bad movies, this is an instant, an instant classic of the genre. <laughs> and I will put the trailer in the show notes because it's very 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 funny. Uh, yeah, so that was what I did. Um, Bloody and, marvelous! You know, I I would love it if uh, Michael Flatley directed uh, some cinematics in video games. Maybe that's what he'll do next with his money. But you could have uh, landed that smoother. That was all there for you on a plate. I know. You know? Yeah, I know. Come on, you're meant to be inspiring me with like perfect technique. If I'm <laughs> gonna be your Segway apprentice. Uh, doesn't cut the mustard. So yeah, this week we're talking about the uh, the best cinematics in games, as suggested by uh, 
McCormack, fake last name. Uh, he says, hey, gang, your show brings me a tremendous amount of joy every week. So thanks so much for that. Thank you for listening. Couldn't do it without you. <laughs> I thought a good episode theme might be the best cinematics in games. Age of Empires 4 has some delightful ones that are well produced and historically educational rewards for level completion. There you go. What, what do you think of the Age of Empires 4 cinematics? They're honestly my favourite thing about the game, um, which sounds way more negative than it is. Like, I do like Age of Empires 4. The problem is I just like Age of Empires 2 better because mm. it was perfect. Um, so once I played the campaigns and stuff, I just went back to 2. But my enduring memory of Age of Empires 4 is those cutscenes. They are extremely high production value, like really like lovingly planned and put together, like brilliantly produced short documentary films. Um, and you always know when that kind of stuff is good because you can remember every bit of information that was in it months later. Um, like that really interesting stuff about like, um, I'm, you know, um, Henry V, like the big man off Shakespeare. Yeah. Did you know about his horrific injury? No. <laughs> content warning for you're gonna bite your fist because this is grim but it's really interesting um when he was like 15 he got shot in the face with an arrow oh yikes okay and it went and it had a barbed tip so you couldn't just pull it out and it went right into the inside of his head yeah so what he just had an arrow in his head forever no no that they took him to a surgeon who, without anaesthetic, got it out, but didn't. They had to invent a machine for pulling out, which is like this grim, like pipe that you put into a wound, and then it's got a little, like, you know, those little, like, Doctor Octopus claws you use to get things out of toilets. Y- y- yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Basically, like a ye oldy version of that, um, and they're still used in surgery today. Uh, oh, was invented in a panic by a man trying to get like the heir to the throne to not die of an arrow being in the middle of his head. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. like, And I wouldn't have known about that if I hadn't have had a blast through Age of Empires 4. So Age of Empires 4 dramatised that whole thing? Well, no, they didn't have like... Michael Flatley with a big fake wound going, ah! Like, <laughs> um, this had like... They, they, it's quite interesting, actually, because they've got... It's very high concept of the visual design age of Empires IV. Uh, when you build buildings and stuff, you have like these sort of golden ghost men like crawling over scaffolding and stuff. And then in the cutscenes they'll show like Hastings or whatever and then superimpose mm. like golden ghost men battering each other on the streets. Okay. Um, which is cool. Uh, so there's always this thing where it's like real real locations with these, these sort of um, rather splendid augmented reality berserkers scampering around. Um, so I can't, I, to be fair, I can't remember how they visually presented them. It might be some like a field in France and like a a shouting golden man with an arrow in his head. Um, you would like shout, say, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, God, you would absolutely go bananas. I'd hate to have an arrow in my head. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think of who who wouldn't, you know. Um, okay. So, yeah. Well, because I, I 
have not played Age of Empires 4, so I was unaware, but that's cool. Um, speaking I was of... trying to think of other games with educational cutscenes, and honestly running dry on anything after the mid-90s. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole educational mode, the Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour thing, where you can just walk around the world and read footnotes that's supposed to be for like schools and things. And so there's no combat, you just wander about and they'll be like, you know, this man is doing embalming or whatever. Um, the I was going to talk about the game I've been playing for review this week, actually, and the review will be up um, by the time this goes goes live. I've been playing Steel Rising, which, which is a, a Souls-like set in revolutionary France, but it's I, saw, I suppose sort of not revolutionary France because it's an alternate history where Louis the Sixteenth um, crushed the revolution before it even started by killing everyone with steampunk robots. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a bit Iron Harvest. Yeah. So it's a. I think it. I can't remember it, but I think it's Lavoisier invented robots um, that were just like automata who did jobs. So they were like robot guards. And there were, you know, robot butchers, robot musicians. It was just like an accordion on legs kind of thing. Um, and Wait, you, are you talking about reality now or still the game? Still the game. Would be good Thank in God. reality, wouldn't it? Um, and robot lumberjacks and stuff. And then uh, in in the context of the game, that was all fine. But then Louis the Sixteenth kind of made friends with like a sort of Rasputin character, like a French Rasputin, who is like a wizard who found a way to like, uh, like power the robots without having to like wind them up and stuff. And so then, when the revolution started, Louis was just like, "All the robots, kill everyone." Um, and you're this playing. This is still basically the plot of Iron Harvest, but a hundred years earlier. It's shameless. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Um, and you play a good robot who was made to protect Marie Antoinette and your job is to sort of sort everything out. But uh, the cutscenes in it, I've been really enjoying because they're <laughs> like all the men in it look functionally indistinguishable because they all have the same coloured wig in and the same sort of face, basically. <laughs> sort of late middle-aged white dudes with like grey wigs. So I can never tell what's going on. But your robot is like... Uh, called, who's called Aegis is very cool looking. It's like a kind of Doctor Who baddie, you know, like a clockwork kind of uh, sort of soldier slash dancer, I guess, with like a beautiful woman's face, but also wearing a man's grey wig. Uh, and my other favourite thing about about the cutscenes is that everyone in it has an English accent and is speaking English, but Sometimes they will say a word in French. <laughs> what kind of visual style are we talking here? I'm, I'm desperately trying to picture this. It's sort of, it's going for realistic. You know, it's 3D. Um, it's got a lot of France in it. Um, but did, does it have the sort of, like, is it a Japanese game? Because there's quite often a very reckless visual grammar when interpreting European history that I really enjoy. No, I don't think so. Um no, it's not. It's by Spider. I don't think they're Japanese. Um, it's but, but it's my favorite thing when you are you set your game in a specific country, 
uh, and then to indicate that it is still in that country, they sometimes say stuff in French. Oh so yeah, like, just throw the occasional word in. Yeah, like like Marie Antoinette is in the first cut scene. I started guffawing because Marie Antoinette is arguing with one of her ladies' maids, and the ladies' maid is like, "We're safe here," and Marie Antoinette goes, "Safe, vraiment." <laughs> <laughs> Sacre bleu. Yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. And then it has like, you know, it will have the English translation in brackets. It did one when I was playing it the other day where uh, it was a phrase that is understood in English, you know, like a loan, a loan phrase. Yeah. I can't remember what it was, but it's like, you know, the French to have a word for entrepreneur or something like that. And it still translated it. It's like, brilliant. I love it. But no, I really, I've actually been really enjoying the look of the robot because you don't often get to see her like in close up because um, you're playing as as the robot. And also amazing uh, outfits like your armor in the game are all these like inspired by different, you know, uh, bit parts of French society, different coats and trousers and stuff. Very cool looking. Um, it sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. The game itself isn't it's. The the setup is uh, not as good maybe as the execution, but I love the the look of the robot in it, and I've been really enjoying the cutscenes and and seeing her like robot about. Actually, thinking about that, um, having mentioned it, the Iron Harvest had some pretty good cutscenes. It was very old school in a lot of ways. Actually, it was um, like very much, you know, a very competent example of an early 2000s strategy game like done today, which I think is a fine thing to do. Um, you know, it's not sort of trying too hard to be retro. It's just taking a formula that works, uh, you know, bringing it up to date visually and then doing it. And it basically plays like Company of Heroes for the most part. Um, but also in the tradition of of old RTSs, it went really hard on cutscenes. Um, and yeah, load of big diesel punk robots stomping around which I could just watch <laughs> until the end of time uh, it's just very pleasing so um, you know I wouldn't say it had like you know acting you'll remember for the rest of your life <laughs> but you know, it worked it, it did what it needed to do you always it's always a good thing when you see a cutscene as part of the reward for finishing a bit of a game do you know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes they're just like, you know, time to get a cup of tea or whatever, or if a game's very, like Halo, for example, I, even if cutscenes are rubbish, I always enjoy them because they're, um, you know, the whole, like, you know, 10, ten minutes of fun uh, theory. Do you know that thing? No. It might not even be called that, but uh, basically the design philosophy behind the pacing of Halo is to to make sure the player is frequently encountering very intense 10-minute sections of fighting. Ah, okay. Uh, where they can sort of, you know, take a breath afterwards. And quite often that's what a cutscene is. It's kind of a moment to take a breath. Um, but I think you're onto a really good thing where they're actually motivationed to push forward. Um, I remember when we were playing God of War, Dad of War, the new one, because um, mm. 
Yeah, like big um, big ones like that me and Ashley used to do together quite a lot, although I haven't played a big game like that in ages. You probably should. Um, but we were really, while I was just sort of hammering buttons to mash up trolls and stuff, yeah, we were talking quite excitedly about what mm. had happened in the last cutscene. Oh, I wonder mm. if we'll get to see, you know, that that funny little Scottish head, um, you know, finally meet his granddad or whatever. I can't remember what, what the subplots yeah. were. But, you know, it was, we were really anticipating them. And she's like, oh, no, don't, don't go and fight all those Valkyries. I want to see what happens next. But, I mean, of course, we all remember that Ashley was was essentially like, the navigator sitting beside mm. the driver of a rally car for Horizon Zero Dawn, stopping yeah. me doing the Billy Bumcloth side quests. And yes, yeah, very much did the same with, with Dawn of War. But I think that Dawn of War, God of War, I think I'm trying to, yeah, it did actually have quite a lot of storytelling distributed throughout the levels as well. But I think just because the action sequences were so deafening, a little bit more of the story was concentrated in cutscenes. Mm. And like some of the action sequences would sort of transition into cutscenes and out again. I yeah, like the fight like... with uh, the geyser who shows up at the beginning. Yeah, and then you're fighting him, and then it will transition into you being like shoved into a mountain for you know forty seconds, and then <laughs> and then back out again. Um, you talking about um, uh, Iron Harvesters made me remember the you know the Red Alert Tim Curry. Bit that's oh become a my meme god, yes. The escaping <laughs> to the. So I think it was Vice did a, an oral history of that moment, and that was the first take. He nailed it. Yeah. Because I think he'd just been having to do, you know, like war game bump kind of off an auto key or whatever all day. And uh, that line, he apparently got a glint in his eye. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's so okay so the Command and Conquer and Red Alert series is a great place to talk about cutscenes in general like yeah. have, when was the last time you played one of those games oh decades plus probably long time I remember having a lot of fun at the time but I am I have a horrible feeling they will have aged like fish, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I think they were probably, like, quite geopolitically insensitive, extremely sexist. Um, yeah, not half as wacky and zany as they seemed at the time. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is when I was, like, 13, there were probably a lot of really deliberately goofy things uh, in those cutscenes and stuff that I just thought was sincere, but with bad production <laughs> values. So in, on, in that regard, I am kind of interested to go back to them. Because, um, yeah, my, my memories of Red Alert definitely is a much more serious game than it actually was. <laughs> I think by the time Red Alert 2 came around... And there was like, you know, a bald Rasputin man who invented a gun that could turn people into the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I think by then it was fairly obvious. Oh, all right. Lost. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that reminds me of the, I was going to say the cutscene, the cinematics in um, 
Warcraft and like Warcraft two and three and mm. those ones. They they were the, the I remember them being like so good. Yeah, I remember watching them being like, This is incredible. It's like real life. They're so realistic. Somewhere I think it's like Illidan the is Illidan there's a big demon anyway who like makes a model of a city in front of him out of sand uh on a clifftop and then he he starts you know destroying the sand model and then the city itself starts falling down this it was just incredible blew my tiny mind but i'm sure if i went back now and looked at it it would be like lego smashing into more lego you know yeah so that's really interesting so you remember it looking visually really impressive yeah i remember it looking really realistic you know that's uh, a strange one, isn't it? Because I always think about this with CGI in movies. It always, unless it's like bad CGI for the time period, it always feels impressive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and, isn't, yeah, it's strange. It's interesting as well because I think when we talk about cinematics, so many game developers are like struggling directors, you know? Yeah. So that makes it like a lot of a lot of game developers think about stuff in terms of like, you know, how can I make this look like a movie? And it's, it's an interesting one because I think the most interesting things about video games are where they're not like other media and, and not like films and not like books and stuff because you're participating in them. But then how do you convey things in a visual language and make it not like a movie, you know. So what I really like in terms of innovations in cutscenes, like on yeah, to, to that uh, to that point, is where you have minor and what I would call like optional interactions with it. Um, I guess the foundational example I can think of would be the the train ride at the beginning of Half Life. Like it doesn't matter. If you oh, choose yeah, to just yeah. like go off and make yourself a frozen pizza, um, you know nothing bad will happen to Gordon. You will just miss out. Like it doesn't matter if you don't look around; it'll be a shame because it's you know lots of interesting detailed stuff. But it's it's optional interaction, and you get, I think, yeah, you, know, you get that to varying extents in a in a lot of cutscenes now. To the extent where I suppose you can't really truly call them cutscenes. Mm. Horror, um, horror games have a lot well as well where you're like you know especially first person horror games where you're like strapped in a chair and then you you know the camera looks down at your arm being cut off or whatever you yeah know. and I always find that a bit I think I would prefer that to have the choice of where to look if it's, some, if it's something like that where the cutscene is meant to generate a visceral response yeah. like why not just let me retain control. Yeah. Because um, I I wouldn't look at my hand being cut off. I don't know about you. <laughs> oh, I'd definitely like, look. You know, I would mean, you? Well, you're only going to see it once, and if you can't do anything about it. Uh, like I always look when I get injected and stuff, which admittedly is a little less severe. But I I don't I don't look when the needle's going in. I don't know why it hurts more if I see it. I was so. Very, very in control of the situation if I'm looking at it. Ah, um, oh, see, if I'm looking at it, then I, that emphasises that I'm not in control of getting, you know, the 
the part thing. Of the journey to the heart of the human condition this week. Because yeah. I have Bloody to get up. I have to get a lot of like blood tests done and stuff all the time. So I I'm kind of an old hand at getting what do you call it when you it's when you get a little thing put in you so they can give you like Oh drugs. cannulated. Yes, cannulas. Had a lot of cannulas. Oh, you poor bastards. They're a bit weird, cannulas. I feel like I can feel them in me, even though they're like, no, you can move around like normal. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't don't like them. Don't like them. Don't like having things. Like, I don't like having new orifices. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with the ones that Grond gave to me. Um, yeah. But moving swiftly on from that, uh, quick time events I was just thinking about. Are they a sort of a daywalker hybrid? Between Ooh. game and cutscene. Oh, I don't know actually. Because um, they always give me like cutscene energy. They have big cutscene energy, don't they? Yeah. I think it depends on the context in which they're happening. Like if it's in a in a fight like in um uh God of Dad. Oh, yeah, there's you, a few in there, aren't there? You have to mash X to punch a man. Then that's not a cutscene. But then sometimes in, like, you know, Tomb Raider or whatever, you'll have kind of no other control but doing the QTE. So, so it sort of happens within a cutscene. So maybe that is one. Mm. I don't know. I always feel I'm, I'm of the opinion that quick time events are great, but they should pretty much rely on something like the placebo effect like basically it should be impossible to fail them unless you're trying to fail them okay so that like you're not being frustrated when it's you know trying to give you a set piece because there's nothing worse to me than like a really cool set piece being ruined again and again because i keep dying during it um so like if a cutscene is intending to show you something slightly too cool to be handled by you mm. know the minute to minute capabilities of the game engine or whatever, you know I want to I want to be confident that I can enjoy the whole thing and I won't have to keep redoing it. So I think they should be and yeah, people completely disagree with me and that's fine. Uh, but just to me personally, you know, I think they should just be there to give the illusion of peril. You know, to keep. Just a little bit of adrenaline in your system, even though you know rationally that, that you, yeah, mm. you're going to be able to beat everyone. That's how I feel about quick time. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I think they are fine. You know, whatever. It's fine as long as you have accessibility options so everyone can do your thing. That's fine. Um, I've just remembered as well the advent of in-engine cutscenes does lead to some funny stuff like there's a someone was posting about it on tumblr there's a cutscene in um dragon age inquisition where if you're romancing the elf the egg elf solus um you'll end up at like a lagoon somewhere where you have like a heartfelt conversation and normally if you go there in the game there are a bunch of wivens there that you have to kill yeah in the cutscene, they're, they're not there. Except someone was playing it and something bugged and there was a wyvern there that would, like, aggro the player. 
And while this cutscene was happening and they were talking about, you know, like their feelings for each other, there would just be this women squirming about attacking the player character um, and until she died, I think. Well, this is, I, I talked a few weeks ago about my, one of my just favourite things in games full stop is where, especially in the early days of sort of uh, ragdoll physics and stuff, like corpses from just finished fights yeah. would roll mournfully across the hills in the background and things like that would happen, which was just really dada and fun. Yeah. Or like in the Dragon Age series, one of the things about it, especially in the first one, which was advertised with like thumping like metal music and like pounding guitars and what have you. It was like, this is a really cool RPG and uh, it was like, you'll be covered. There's so much gore. And the gore was just, you got covered in like progressive kind of amounts of paint splatter blood. So if you had a cutscene after having a fight, it just all your characters would look like they'd been Jackson Pollocks. Brilliant. All over their faces. It was great. Good. It was a real good time. Um, <sighs> when did in in engine cutscenes start? I'm trying to think now. I don't know, actually. I don't know. The earliest game I can think of that had them. Um, oh, you know what really annoys me? I wish there was some way that Steam could magically know all of the games I owned during the 90s. Because whenever I'm trying to think of examples of stuff for the podcast, I always yeah. look down my Steam list, but then like beyond like 2011, it's just like, it's a mystery. Hmm. I don't know. It can't have been too long ago. Although, you know, too long ago, I probably still think that like when I was 15 was like five years ago. So, okay, um, if we're going to go really old. Yeah. Do we consider Encarta to be a video game? Okay. Well, I don't know if I'm allowing this. Because <laughs> well, I just, I remember, actually, I don't know. It wasn't the first video I ever saw on a computer. It wasn't actually in Carter. It was an educational CD-ROM about the Aztecs. Uh-huh. Um, when I was in year five, I think, so this would have been like 1994, I think. So real CD-ROMs were just like unholy artifacts from the dark age of technology. They were really just incredible things. Mm. And the idea that they could store video. Cool. And this this whole CD about the Aztecs had like four videos in it, each of which was about 40 seconds long. But they were just like miracles. And they must, now thinking about they were probably like 180 by 180 resolution. But again, it's that thing, isn't it? That if you've not seen any, anything better, it seems incredible. Which is bizarre considering, you know, there were televisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember going to see, there was a Final Fantasy movie called Final Fantasy, The Spirit Within, and it was terrible. Me and my brother went to see it, and we were like, oh, it's a whole new world. It's incredible. It's like I'm there, you know. Oh, that, yeah, that looked proper Garfield, that one, didn't it? It was terrible. Um, but, yeah, any more for any more, because if you haven't, we've got quite an important uh, trial to get to. <laughs> Yeah, it's true, actually. There's major legal business to be sorted out, so um, I should probably go and open up the courtroom. Yeah. The cavern of justice. So, listener, we received a very important missive from uh, someone called Brondir 
Bront Bre- Brendan from Something Brendan like that. Bren- Brendan Col- Colds Brendan Caldwell, who I th- I think we may have met. Um, he oh said, yeah, wasn't he at an event sometime? Yeah, I think so. Um, but he emailed in and said, "Dear Rock Paper Shotgun Electronic Wireless Show, I am a fan of your program. I have listened to it multiple times. Your dedication to video games is admirable, and I wish you many more episodes." I am just a humble listener, but I have one request. Many years ago, I was the victim of a terrible libel. To correct this wrong, I asked that you address the coward Matthew Castle in the middle of your show and demand that he publicly recant his accusations concerning one limited edition Cyberbabe statuette. (laughs) Oh, this is one for the deep law fans, isn't it? Your listeners deserve to know the truth. I have been living in exile since 2018 due to the foul foul (laughs) slanders, and I ask only that you use the powerful milestone of the 200th show to finally clear my name. Yours sincerely, Brandy Caldwell. Now, first of all, um, we couldn't do it in the 200th episode because he sent this email in after we'd recorded the 200th episode. Um, So apologies for that, Brendan. And second of all, Matthew isn't here and he probably isn't going to be here for a few weeks because he has other commitments. Uh, so, do you know how we could solve both of these problems? Uh, oh, how? Time travel. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this as a time travel legal procedural. Okay. Well, I mean, we were going to try Matthew in absentia. Are you going to? Are you going to play Matthew? What are you? <laughs> yeah, I'll be. I'll... I'll play the judge and Matthew. Okay. You can play prosecution and defence. <laughs> it's fine. I watched Better Call Saul recently. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know how, how the legal system works. Okay. Okay. Well, I I mean, I can be both prosecution and, defense, uh, and a witness because I was there for the alleged incident. Well, we've got to do the housekeeping first. So okay. Please, all rise for... Uh, the Alabaster Titan QC. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to do the voice changer. It, it would be maddening if we were attempting to actually understand conversation, but just pretend I'm doing it. Okay. Um, hello. Gather the matter in court today concerns a limited edition Cyber Babe statuette. Yes, Your Honour. And for those listeners who don't remember, because it was literal years ago now, um, in 2018... Before Nate had joined the podcast, uh, me, Matthew, and Brendy all went to Cologne for Gamescom. We were there on the ground and recorded an episode of the podcast. Um, And it was the year that Cyberpunk 2077 was being shown to the press for the first time. It was hands-off, I suspect entirely pre-recorded demo. And uh, as part of that, if you went to the um, the demo, if you saw a demo, as you left, you were given a jacket uh, and a cyber bait. <laughs> Please describe the nature. Uh, can we, can we, uh, let's have the evidence school bring out yeah. a cyber babe in an evidence bag. Can you please describe the statuette uh, being discussed. Okay, so it's a um, the sort of statuette you get with like a, a pre-order mega edition for a game, um, probably about maybe a ten inches, eight to ten inches high, um, and it's the 
babe from the first trailer of Cyberpunk who has is wearing like a strapless white mini dress and has knives in her arm, like sword arms. Oh yeah, and, so that's the electricity cop's wife. Yes, yeah, so it's the electricity cop's wife, and she's on her knees on a little roundel um, base with her sword arms sort of partially out. How tasteful would you say it is? Um, I mean, it's not the the headless bikini torso from uh, Dead Dead Island. It's nowhere near. Has that going no, for it? Uh, it's not like the least tasteful pre-order statuette I've ever seen, but I would say I would be more embarrassed to have it um, on my size table than like, you know, a, a soldier man or an assassin on a wall kind of thing. Okay, so it is an item of of palpable shame, if not overwhelming shame, yeah? I don't know, overwhelming. I, like, as an adult, as we all were at the time, it's definitely not something I would decorate my home with. <laughs> you wouldn't you know? want it in the background on a Zoom call, put it that Yes, way. exactly, exactly. And I, in fact, gave my cyber babe away to a member of the public who was not as grateful as I would have wished, <laughs> given that it was a very exclusive thing that you could only get if you were in this preview. He was like, oh. Wow. Kids these days. Yeah, so, because so, of course, okay. I, I... There were three only... cyber babes in the equation then, right? Yes, I believe so, yeah. And we were... Um, the thing is... My memory of the event is now almost entirely overwritten with what we said happened. <laughs> this is challenging considering you're both prosecution and defence. Yeah. So what happened is, that, like, because the cyber babes were, the cyber babe herself, not, like, huge, but, like, but in was in, like, a rectangular, you know, a box, quite a big box. You were saying uh, about 10, 10 inches, the, the statuette, so I'm imagining the box is, like... A shoebox size, right? Yeah, something like that. A little smaller than a shoebox, maybe a little... Um, uh, not quite as... as If you stand a shoebox on its su- like shortest side, so it's standing upright, I would say that the Cyber Babe was, had more depth but wasn't as uh, tall. So it was a little more cuboid, a little more squat. But she, she was big enough. She was, she, and, and so we each had one. And uh, we were sort of, we had one day left. So we were going home the next day. And I couldn't fit a cyber babe in my bag because (laughs) I think it was at the time I was still just going to events with just my rucksack. So like I would pack all my clothes and my laptop and stuff for, for, because it's normally like two, two or three nights max when you go to one of these. So I pack all my clothes in there. And then by the end of, on the final day, I'd have to repack everything. So I was just on the final day of a show floor, you'd see me walk around my rucksack and it would have all my old pants in, you know. Um, so I couldn't take the side of home, which is my, why I gave mine away. And I believe, <laughs> I think. Brendan asked Matthew if Matthew could take his cyber babe. So the okay, so the the accusation before the court <laughs> is that Brendan asked Matthew to smuggle a cyber babe across <laughs> international waters. Yeah, but then the slander occurred because we then uh, 
told everyone that Brendan was obsessively trying to get as many cyber babes as possible and like he tripped and his case fell open and just (laughs) tens of cyber babes fell out. Yeah, this is actually quite major slander here. <laughs> and like, and he was just desperate to get more cyber babes, <laughs> and was hiding them in every crevice he could. I mean, that does sound like Brandon. It does. Um, yeah, I mean, that is absolutely dead center for the man's character, and um, and and also is because Brendan is from. Northern Ireland, so I believe we did some impressions of him saying the word cyber babe because it's quite fun in a Norny accent. <laughs> it's very pleasing. I won't attempt it, but I like it. Um, Matthew in particular was very good at it. Um... <laughs> we've got a tricky situation here. It's a very, very difficult verdict to reach because... Yeah, see, the difficulty is that I can't remember which of... The, the recollections of the events is true. Like, maybe Brendan asked Matthew if there was room for a cyber babe in his suitcase, or maybe Brendan was stealing many cyber babes, was repeatedly going to the demo again and again in a series of disguises just to get cyber babes, and was throughout all his other possessions just so he could fit multiple cyber babes in his suitcase. Hmm, well, I mean, considering the evidence on one hand... <laughs> You have confessed that that didn't happen. But on the other hand, it's very, very funny. <laughs> um, and would be even funnier um, to, to find it true in a court of law. Yeah. Um, let me just confer with the jury of cyber babes. <laughs> oh, damn it. It would have actually been very good to have the voice changer on hand for this. Oh, um, no. Uh, they're gyrating. Um, but thoughtfully, thoughtfully, and, respectfully. Yeah, I'm. I'm afraid uh, the um, the case has been. Well, the I suppose this is a a sort of tort action, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Case has been thrown out. Uh, insubstantial evidence. Um, oh, okay. And I'm pretty sure this is how the law works. We're going to have to counter-prosecute for uh, wasting uh, the electricity cop's time <laughs> in apprehending enough cyber babes to form a jury. I so. think, uh, yeah, we'll throw it out. Maybe we'll, um, we'll put it to Matthew when he's back. Maybe we'll get this Mr. Coldwell on to defend himself in Matthew's absence as well. That would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> That'd be extremely exciting. <laughs> All right. Uh, I wish I had something. I don't have a, a gavel to bang. I've oh, got I a, do. I've, I've got, got them. vape. Hold on. Court dismissed. Then just imagine me ascending in a cloud of sickly steam. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you uh, for bearing with us while we dealt with that piece of very important uh, legal matter. We, of course, uh, don't want the Electronic Wireless show to be sued at any point. So um, (laughs) it was important that we put that matter to rest. Um, And we'll let you know if Mr. Mr. Caldwell has any further complaints. (laughs)
<laughs> from his palace of cyber babes. You know how some some people have like they wallpaper rooms with like their favorite book and stuff. Brendan's built an interior wall in his house out of cyber babes in their boxes. It's like the partition between his kitchen and his living room. I was thinking, you remember on the Night Files the other week, we talked about those ants that make giant structures out of their own bodies. Mm. I was thinking maybe his house is like a giant bivouac made of like interlocking cyber babes. And and like if he's ever in peril, they all scuttle and form a raft. <laughs> yeah, and he floats away down the Amazon. Yeah. Of course. Uh, uh, speaking of the Night Files, we will of course have... Uh, a new episode because I think I'm maybe behind a month because we record them quite far in advance. So I'm going to put up at least one episode of the Nate Files this week. Um, and the Nate Files, of course, are our supporter-funded uh, extra podcast where Nate teaches us things about, for example, ants or elephants or very small things or very big things or fossils. So I really of... like the way you said fossils. There. Fossils. Thanks. Um, but for now, this episode of the regular podcast, The Electronic Wild Show, episode 200, The Best Cinematics and Games, uh, all we've got left to do is do some recommendations. So this week, I'm going to recommend a film. It is not Blackbird, although as I previously mentioned, do consider going to see Blackbird, especially <laughs> if you're feeling a bit down, it'll cheer you up, no end. Um, but the film I'm actually going to recommend is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand which is um, a very nice um, comedy, comedy drama about um, a retired um, widowed woman who has never had an orgasm and she hires a young sex worker over a series of a few sessions to meet her in a hotel and sort of unravel her hang-ups. Um, but there's also kind of a bit of drama between them as well. Uh, and it stars Emma Thompson uh, as the lady. And, oh, gosh, I've forgotten his name. But he was in Peaky Blinders. He's really, really good in the film as well. Um, Is he as... the main guy in Peaky Blinders? No. that, that... <laughs> I don't know if Gillian Murphy would have the same kind of effect. <laughs> uh, but it's a very good, really good film. Um, really small cast. It all basically all takes place... Uh, in Daryl McCormick, that's his name, um, in a hotel room, a uh, lot of pressure put on the two of them, but they carry it really, really well. Um, really Sounds nice. wicked. Yeah, it's great. Um, there is obviously nudity and sexual content, but um, really, really lovely, sweet film. Uh, Nate, what are you recommending this week? We haven't done much soft uh, soft drink chat this week, have we? No. The, the Rio King is out. So. And my Rio is out. Um, Ashley bought me subscription to Rio. So every month uh, a case of 24 cans arrives. Only the last two months, they've just sent them to random shops about a mile down the road. What? <laughs> it's really, we can't work out what's going on because it's not even like a simple confusing address. They've just delivered the Rio to nearby shops, seemingly chosen at random. Do they who just, then presumably sold it? Do they just assume that like no man would order twenty four cans of Rio a month? <laughs> yeah, I think they'd probably show up and go, "No, this this won't be to a house. 
there's a beast lives there. Let's take it to a shop. Uh, so there's been no Rio. And do you know that's been okay because, um, like, you know, uh, obviously you shouldn't, shouldn't drink too many sugary drinks, etc. Um, so I'm always, I'm always on the hunt um, for new good soft drinks. And but it sounds like we're, we're doing like a sponsored segue. It's not. <laughs> Um, the problems I found is either things have got sweetener in, which are an instant out because all sweetener tastes like devil sick to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's like, there's a big trend now for like zero sugar flavored fizzy waters, which yeah. can Seltzers. be good. Um, yeah. I love some of them. We get through quite a lot of dash in this house, but I find I like to chug things from cans. It's just viscerally very pleasant. Um, and they're so carbonated that that's basically like someone firing blanks on an air rifle directly into your esophagus. <laughs> I find it, you know, just a bit too much. Yeah. And I have found the sweet spot. Um, there are some drinks called Pop Soda. Unfortunately, they're made by Brewdog. Um, but... They're excellent. Um, they come in four flavours that I know of. Lemon, grapefruit, uh, cola, and my favourite, dark cherry and chocolate, which is very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we bought them in Tesco at an impossibly cheap price. Um, they are they're non, non-profits, all of the 80 classic brew dog stuff. Uh, gimmicks like all the money goes to climate change charities and there's it's got very plain branding but honestly i i, I don't like to to get sucked into the whole brew dog marketing machine so i will just say they are they have just the right amount of sugar to taste sweet without you know being anywhere near um the you know what what you'd have in most leading soft drinks uh, they're reasonably carbonated. I would say carbonated at the exact same level as Rio, which I would calibrate as lightly sparkling. Um, and they're, you know, they're very su- not subtly, um, you know, well flavoured. They taste what like what they're meant to taste of. Um, there's no glaring chemical aftertaste. They are really exceptional soft drinks. So uh, pop soda or P O P soda. Um, yeah, great stuff. Lovely. Um, well, thank you, listener, for joining me. And medium smoke, were you? <laughs> yeah, medium-sized smoke. Medium-sized smoke. Uh, for this episode, the Electronic Wireless Show, where we talked about our favourite cinematics and cutscenes in games. And uh, what? Well, I've forgotten my, my outro. You can find us on yeah, the yeah. internet. You can find Rock Paper Shotgun on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for Rock Paper Shotgun. You can email in the podcast, podcast at rockpapershotgun.com. You can join the Discord, the link to which is in the show notes, as well as the link to our merch store if you fancy buying a T-shirt. But for all your PC gaming needs, just go to www.rockpapershotgun.com. But for now, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Nate. Au revoir. Bye. Bye.